Welcome to the Modern Independent, where we are on a mission to assist modern independent workers in accelerating their growth, both personally and professionally. Every year, our parent community, Indie Collective, offers two 10-week accelerator programs known as the Launchpad. In these programs, cohorts of around 80 independent consultants and coaches, just like you, gain access to an expert-led curriculum, then work together to set bigger visions and goals for their business and lives. If you're interested in learning more about our 10-week Launchpad cohorts, go to www.indiecollective.co, where you can learn about the program, hear members speak about their experiences, and apply for the next cohort. We accept applications on a rolling basis, and as a podcast listener, you'll receive priority when applying for an interview, as well as a limited-time $500 friends and family discount. Just reference the podcast in your application. And now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Modern Independent. I'm Jan Almasy, and this is an episode of The Launchpad, where we are going to be interviewing people that have graduated from the Indie Collective cohort and are actively in the world making big changes and chasing their dreams. Today, our guest inspires purpose-driven women to build an influential personal brand that creates change and raises revenue. Her mission is truly empowering women who have historically and systemically been excluded from places of power and influence to build their own boardroom table. She spent the proverbial 10,000 hours sharing the stories of women as the chief storyteller of a women's addiction treatment program. She helped newly sober women write their recovery story and saw how they related it to themselves and others. People are attracted to leaders who share their journey with vulnerability and authenticity. Our guest especially enjoys working with social impact entrepreneurs, mental health change makers, nonprofit founders, and philanthropic leaders. At the end of the day, her mission is to help women making a difference, find their way to get the message out without simply adding to the noise. So... Today, I would like to welcome Tanya to the show. Welcome. Thank you so much, Jan. I feel very welcomed. That was great. I wish that I could just, I just, I need to just like clip that and listen to it every morning when I wake up in your, in your beautiful voice. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I've been, I've, I've been told I have a voice for radio and I'm not sure if that's a compliment to the voice or a, uh, a diss on the face, but <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. If um, if there's anybody out there that would like me to record a clip for that, <laughs> shame, little shameless plug to start us off. Um, so uh, all of that aside, I'm super, super excited to have you here with us today because um, outside of the fact that I love uh, and everybody that's listened to this has probably been like, he says this is his favorite episode every time. But it, they really are, you know, like every single person that we've had on the launch pad is just mind boggling as far as the things that they've been involved with, the career changes they've made. And um, just recently, uh, I actually inside of this realm of addiction recovery, there was a friend of mine on LinkedIn that I saw. His name's Bryce. And he just posted a, a picture of his 11 year sobriety coin. And I used to work with Bryce when I worked as a, um, what's called a CDCA. And so for those of you that have never worked in the space, a CDCA is a clinical drug abuse counselor's assistant, essentially, I believe is, is what it is. 
Um, and so my job was working directly with NA and AA groups. Um, that's where I met Bryce. Bryce was also a what we called a patient advocate in an in-house rehabilitation center for 13 to 19-year-old boys. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, Bryce has gone on and through his journey of sobriety is now the executive director of a company called Sparrow Health and is providing all of these services to other people that have gone through addiction recovery. And before he posted that post, we had a conversation. He was like, man, I'm really nervous about posting this. I don't know if I want to talk about this on LinkedIn, you know, um, but this is something that is like a really big piece of me. This is something that I'm really proud of. It's been a battle for me over the last 11 years to stay sober, as well as do all of the things that have gotten me to the place where now I can become an advocate to others that are undergoing that journey. And I noticed, you know, a a lot of the things that, that inside of your bio that were discussed is you started off by helping people going through addiction recovery, tell their story. Um, what was that, what was that like for you? You know, as, as you first started off and how did you get into that field? I mean, there's so many questions about that in general. So why don't we just start with, with what really got you interested in addiction recovery and, and got you into that first position where you were helping women write their stories? Yeah. Wow. Well, first of all, kudos to Bryce. That's incredible. That's, and I think I've heard of Sparrow Health. So that's, that's fabulous. You know, I I always knew that I wanted to go into some kind of a helping profession. And I first thought that was going to become, I thought I was going to become a teacher. I tutored all throughout school. And, but when it, I ended up graduating from my alma mater, UC Irvine in 2009, which if you remember back then, that was not a great time to graduate. There weren't, there weren't a lot of jobs available. The economy was crashing, et cetera, et cetera. So I started just like peppering my resume out. And one of the first people to reach back out to me was this organization, this nonprofit addiction treatment program where women could bring their kids. They could come there if they were pregnant. You know, even if they didn't have children, they could go there. And it was a really, uh, I had never, I didn't know anything about recovery at the time. Right. Mm. But I showed up, I showed up and there was a woman there who I actually knew from school. She and I were classmates together. And I was like, oh, hey, you know, are you uh, are you here for the job interview? I thought she was my competition for the position. But it's hmm. it turned out that she was actually there. She was a patient. She had been living there and going to school at the same time. But I had no idea. Wow. Right? I had no idea. And that was a big aha moment for me because that's where kind of the, you know, like the veil, the veil came off. And I was like, wait a second, because I, I had this idea of what somebody who had an addiction looked like. And I had an idea of what that space was going to look like, but in actuality, Mm. it was beautiful, right? There were like butterflies flying around and there were rocking chairs and there were water features. And it was a, it was a place of peace. Um, And so that was a huge aha moment, right? That was a big like stigma shattered. That was my, that was when my stigma got shattered and I was like, wow. So I ended up getting that job and I stayed there for 12 years. And, you know, my first role was fundraising. So I was kind of tasked with finding impact stories. I was tasked with like getting testimonials so I could share with our donors and our stakeholders and the companies that supported us. And so, you know, much like that young woman came to me and shared her story, I would sit with our patients and, you know, learn more about their journey, about their narrative. Mm with their permission, right? And it would only be the people who wanted to do that. Um, And 
there was always an underlying kind of vibe or sense of, of a palpable sense of their not enoughness, like their shame surrounding their addiction diagnosis was, was like present. It was there in the room with us, especially mm-hmm. people who were pregnant or people who had young children with them. I mean, the stigma, like their, their self um, esteem was just shattered as a result of that. Um, and because of how others saw them, because of how society saw them. Right. Um, right. And so we'd work together on a new recovery narrative, you know, one that wasn't rooted in that shame and that trauma and that stigma, but one that was really centered on their transformation and their healing and their courage and their vision for the future. Right. And so Mm. I did that enough times where it stopped being about like trying to collect marketing material. Like it, it wasn't about that anymore. It turned into something where through their story, they learned how to advocate for themselves, right? They learned how to stand in their power. They learned how to share their voice to mm. make a change uh, in their families, right? In in their legal situation, in their workplaces. And by doing so and by, by getting visible and like telling their story, but a story that's really rooted in their strength, um, it also changed the perception in the community of what a woman with addiction was like, you know, mm. much, much like uh, I had that experience when... I first got there. And so what that taught me on was that the story that we like, I guess what it taught me is when we change the story that we tell about ourselves, the story that the world sees about you also changes, you know, Mm, and that's really where I learned that, you know, I love that. Yeah, I think that that's something. And and the reason why I brought up the Bryce story in the beginning, just so that, you know, everybody that's listening kind of has context um, is that that was that's that's an 11 year sobriety coin. You know, mm-hmm. and and that conversation is still eleven years later after going through. And I know for a fact that he's encountered individuals like yourself along his journey because we've talked about it. Um, it's still that that fear of judgment, that that you know, fear of stigmatism and things like that. They're still there, but for everybody that, that's listening, the the result of that post right? That 11 year sobriety coin post that he was very, you know, back and forth on whether or not he should actually talk about it, um, has gotten thousands of views, like almost a hundred comments. You know, it was very, there was a lot of other people that rose, that raised their hand and said, I have also struggled. And this post really spoke to me in a way that allowed me to have permission to kind of change my narrative. Um, and that's what that's something that I think is so beautiful inside of that space is that the minute that you take this story of I'm not enough, I consistently fail, I've constantly come short, which is what everybody constantly tells you, you know, when the world is really beating somebody down, um, at least in, in my personal experience, when I was kind of in the addiction recovery space, and then they come in and there really is it's probably some of the most potent aha moments I've ever witnessed, you know, um, moment that somebody realizes that they can intrinsically have value for themselves. And as soon as they realize like, I am valuable, my, I control this narrative. Like I'm, I can project, I can root myself in my strengths. It, it can completely change the way that they act in the facility. It can change the way that they interact with the world. It can change the way that they project themselves, the way they talk about themselves, the narratives they're telling themselves in their own heads. Um, has there been like, 
is there an aha moment that stands out to you um, in your career path? Like when you were first started kind of working with them um, that you were like, yeah, I need to do this for the rest of my career. Or like <laughs> I need to stay here and, and continue telling stories. Yeah. I mean, an aha moment. There's so many aha moments, Jan, as I'm sure you can uh, relate to. But, you know, as you were sharing, some of the things that came up for me was, you know, I can see why he would be nervous, especially to post it on a platform like LinkedIn, you know, because we think of that as like a very corporate, very professional, very maybe sometimes people think of it as like a stuffy place where you just go to put up Mm. your resume. But in Mm. actuality, it's very much a place to be a resource, right? It's not about being a resume. It's about being a resource. And so an aha moment was, you know, back, you know, I was still working at that nonprofit. And um, as a part of my role, I was tasked with supporting my mentor, you know, she was our executive director at the time. And sometimes I would help board members too, like with their own, with their LinkedIn posts, like I would help ghost write their stories, essentially, because hmm. they didn't have necessarily the time or really the, the energy to do that. They were, you know, busy working in the trenches. And so I would go straight stuff like op-eds, industry columns, and a lot of LinkedIn content. And what I realized is the same reaction that our patients would have around this, like, not enoughness, this, like, oh, can I really say this? A lot of those things would come up for these, you know, highly credentialed women who had many years of experience, who had lived, you know, who had lived experience in the thing, um, it was the same. It was the same, whether I was sitting with a patient who was going through a recovery process or a professional who was getting ready to like share authentic, share their story authentically. Right. And so I was mm. always surprised um, at the impostery thoughts that would come up. And but that that taught me what that taught me is like even the most externally confident, capable, shiny, uh, influential people have their own self-doubts. And I didn't know that Mm. before then. You know, Mm. I was still in my early 20s at this time. And so I kind of thought I was the only one. And so whether we're getting sober or just trying to get visible as an independent uh, worker, as an entrepreneur, as a thought leader, I think our self-limiting beliefs show up. They, They like pop out. They say, hey, I'm here. Um, And usually it shows up as like an uncomfortability around getting seen, like on LinkedIn, like you were sharing, um, playing small, downplaying things, playing the comparison game, you know, like, oh, my story is not as exciting as that other person's story. Right. Um, And we never win that game. We never win the comparison game. Um, Mm -hmm. And and, you know, these stories, uh, if I'm speaking about like, you know, us as independent workers and aspiring thought leaders, those stories are kind of even more insidious because the women we served, like they were in a recovery process. They knew that they were going from a, you know, a, a space of, um, you know, a, a, not, a not very good space in their life, self-admittedly into a recovered space. And so, mm. but for us, like we are just living our life and we don't necessarily know that the stories that are that are coming up are actually just that. We don't know their stories. We just think that's life. And mm. so, you know, and, and it's our inner chaperone. It's our inner critic telling us these things. And so, so what I saw, how my mentor and how these board members got more uh, visible is just getting 1% more uncomfortable. Uh, just, you know, maybe not going right out there and talking about the recovery with their very first post, but leading up to that over time, you know, and stretching, stretching. And what I saw was that it it started working. And when it works, you want to do more of it, right? And so I would see Mm. people approach her at conferences, you know, asking her questions about her unique ideas and her stories and her solutions that she came up with because of her own journey, right? Her own lived experience. And what I think kind of like 
something that I've realized too, is that it's the people in the trenches who have the real solutions. They're just not always at the table. Um, and so the more that we can share these stories, the more the world is going to heal as a result. You know, that's something I know for sure. Right, right. It's really, I feel like I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and um, we were talking, he's a counselor. He's a, mm. a, a licensed counselor. And we were talking about narrative therapy mm. and and how similar um, cause I, I think that the way that we got into the conversation was I was talking about, um, different people that I w- had been interviewing and, and I knew that we had our interview coming up and I was like, well, you know, our biggest kind of crossing point is you and I have both been in the addiction recovery space and we both enjoy copywriting, ghostwriting. And I was like, I feel like sometimes, I mean, I'm really curious about your opinion on this because this came out of the conversation with Q, um, who's the counselor. Mm-hmm. Does it sometimes feel almost as if you're conducting a therapy session of sorts as you're guiding somebody through the process of understanding their narrative? You're like you're unlocking the stories and helping them recognize that. Like I'll just leave that open ended. You know what? What has your experience been inside of that space when you get somebody to engage with that narrative and understand their stories? Oh, I love that you brought this up. And I and I kind of reacted. I don't know if the video will be. I kind of reacted because, um, Jan, you know, I have my own podcast called The Campfire Circle. And the episode that's dropping tomorrow uh, is actually about narrative therapy. And I interviewed oh, yeah, I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I so, love that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm obsessed with this concept. I interviewed this um, amazing woman, Dr. Devana. She's a you know professor. She's a keynote speaker. She's a licensed counselor. And one of the things that she said that really stuck with me is that narrative therapy is actually a very socially just and equitable type of therapeutic model because it uh, it helps people not become just the actor in their life because actors don't have power. They just mm. follow the script that's been given to them. But narrative therapy actually helps you become the director. You can rise above your story and look at it from a critical point of view and think, was that really me or was that dominant culture, right? Was that really me or was that like conditioning, my conditioning, mm. you know what I mean? Mm. And so I love narrative therapy and I have found this process to be really therapeutic when I, so I work with clients to like pull out their, their brand stories and their thought leadership stories and really help them show up as that go-to trusted voice in their space. And so much of that is this work. It's going in and looking at the, I don't know, what do I want, messy parts of their life, the things that they have overcome to now become the guide that they are, you know, and mm. you know, story brand talks a lot about, about that about becoming the guide for your audience. Um, and I, I was all, I was very surprised in my first couple of sessions. I do VIP days. I was surprised at the tears and the emotions, not maybe surprised is not the right word. I wasn't surprised. Right. And for, uh, and for those yeah. listening that, that may not understand what a VIP day is, could you, could you just kind of explain what a VIP day is? Yeah, sure. So a VIP day is a one-day intensive where I spend an entire day with somebody and help them set up the foundation for their brand messaging, for their like their thought leadership brand messaging. So, and we get deep, right? Because it's like figuring out what is their vision for the future. Mm. What are your values? What what behaviors do you need to stop doing to really embody your vision? You know, because it's it's easy to say that a certain thing is your vision, but are you still actually recreating how things have always been? Because Mm. 
you mm-hmm. know what I'm you know and, and we write their story and that's a big part we write their story and it's hugely therapeutic because so often um they see the things that they've been through as constraints but in actuality like you were saying before like constraints um constraints are actually strengths because mm-hmm. we have had to figure out a way to overcome them and uh who better to teach your audience about those things I think so often our audience is the our audience oftentimes are the people that we once were. And so when we tell our stories and the whole, like, you know, the full story, including the turning point, when we knew things had to change, um, you know, uh, uh, the defining moment, what life was like before, what life is like now, you know, when we share all of those things, it provides a really rich experience for our audience because they then see themselves reflected back in that story. And so, Mm -hmm. To go back to your original question, um, I do think that, I'm not a clinician, I'm not a therapist, so I don't, I don't have the credentials for that, but I do think that it's a very therapeutic process. And I think that surprises people because they think they're coming in and doing like a marketing strategy day kind of a thing. And it turns out to be this like this different thing. You know, something I say often is when you're inside the bottle, it's really hard to read the label on the outside. And I think that's mm. what happens with our stories. Like we're too close to it to really see the value of our story. But um, yeah. when we can spend that intentional time to rise above it, you know, and become the director of our story, we can really see how it can help others and ourselves. Yeah. I think that um, there uh, a gentleman named Alan Watts, um, has a quote that I really enjoy that says, um, attempting to define oneself is like attempting to bite your own teeth. <laughs> yeah. And I'm very similar to the idea of be when you're inside of the bottle, you can't read the label. Um, and, and I love that, that you kind of described, you know, you prefaced it by saying, you know, I'm not a therapist. I don't have any like, clinical license, but I think that, um, that, something that's super beautiful about, about the way that you just described that VIP day is that unintentionally it becomes therapeutic for the person throughout the process. So it's not necessarily like the, the act of writing your story is what's therapeutic. It's, it's the ability to have a safe space Mm -hmm. to have a conversation with somebody that is actively listening to your story mm. and helping you point out parts of the label that you haven't been able to read, you know, and, and once somebody realizes those things, it's not like they leave that session and then they just forget it. Right. You know, they now leave that session and they have a completely different view of themselves mm. because they've taken the time now to like actually engage in, in conversation about themselves which is very rare to have that inside of you know if you're a person that's that's like okay well how do i become authentic or how do i how do i really figure out what these values are a vip day um would be would be perfect for something like that because it gives you a space to have very open transparent vulnerable conversations with somebody that's not a part of your organization stay with us we'll be right back hey listener Sorry to interrupt the vibes. I'll be out of your way in just a second. It's Jan, the head of community here at Indie Collective. Thanks for making it this far into our episode. Just a reminder that if you're connecting with this story, you can go to IndieCollective.co where you can learn about the program, hear members speak about their experiences, and apply for our next cohort. As a podcast listener, you'll receive priority when applying for an interview as well as a limited time $500 friends and family discount. All right, I'll get back out of your way. 
Right, right. And to be and to be fully seen and witnessed and held mm. during that during that process. Maybe not physically, but you know, the space is held for them. And you're right. We never really get that opportunity. Even in even if we are actively going to therapy, like of having a full day to let that all unfold gives it the space that it deserves because it's kind of an emergent process. Like you might write down something in your pre-work that you think is just basic or that has no it, you just write it down when in actuality that can become the key to unlock this whole like expertise that you didn't even really realize was an expertise, if right. that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going to kind of rewind just a little bit and then kind of get us into a little bit more of understanding your journey, because I could spend, you know, I could spend all day talking to you about narrative therapy and, and other <laughs> stuff like that. But I'm sure that everybody listening is like, get to the good part. Um, <laughs> so, so you were, you were at, you worked in the addiction and recovery center, right? And you said that you were there for about 12 years. Yeah. 12 years. Yeah. So, um, you, what did, what was your role when you were in that 12th year and, and, and how did you transition out of that? What was the next thing that you did after, after working in the addiction recovery space? Yeah. So in that 12th year, um, I had become the executive director of our foundation. So I started as like, you know, I was Bambi fresh out of college, like wide eyed, which like didn't know what the heck I was doing um, <laughs> and had some really incredible mentors. Right. And like on the on the ground training. So I became so I went from the fundraising assistant in 2009 and eventually became the ED executive director of that foundation. And so I so really I was a fundraiser, like my primary wow. role was a fundraiser throughout that time. Yeah. And after that, I started this. So I've really just had two kind of big things, which was that for 12 years. And now my and now my independent worker consultancy. Yeah, that's awesome. That's that is I that is so cool. Um, there's very few people that I've met that have like kind of successfully integrated into an organization and then just like experienced every part of that organization up to the level of leading it. Um I, the other, the other person that I know that has done that is, is a woman named, um, Nicole. And she started off working at our local hospital system as a nurse's aide and is now the chief nursing officer of the entire hospital system wow. and has worked Oof. inside of that hospital system all the way from, you know, the bottom position, uh, essentially inside of the nursing field, all the way up to leading all of these nurses and her level of intimacy and understanding of every single part of that org structure is so mm. beautiful to watch. Um, yes. Experience so much of what the people are going. It's, it's almost like I, I tell her that she has effortless empathy. She doesn't, mm. even, doesn't even have to think about it because she's been there. So nice. she just knows intuitively. Um, so, okay. So you, so you worked your way up to being the executive director. You just kind of were in a fundraising role that entire time. What, um, what was it like starting the independent practice? So you 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 leave the position as, as executive director and and you enter what type of space? You know what what was that transition like and 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 what really drove you to say I want to do this for other people and and build my independent practice? You know, that's a great question. And so you're giving me that opportunity to reflect back that we were just talking about earlier and holding the space. So I just want to say I appreciate that. That's pretty cool. Um, you know, a lot of people told me I was like brave and courageous or whatever for leaving in the midst of a global pandemic and whatnot. But I just knew that it was the time. I knew it was the time. Um, 
what do I want to say? You know, I, I entered the nonprofit space because I knew I wanted to always like, quote unquote, help people. I think I said that earlier. And, mm-hmm. you know, non- nonprofits are always seen as like a helping profession. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things, though, about the nonprofit fields that are kind of resulting in a mass exodus of nonprofit professionals. And I saw that and I was like, wait a second, I can help the people who are getting ready to leave or even those who are still working in nonprofits and in social impact roles. Um, because, you know, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, but I want to say it again because it's that important, because I think that the big problem that I'm trying to tackle and work on is that, you know, those who are working and living in the trenches, right, those people who are closest to the world's most pressing problems, um, they're the ones with the solutions. But like I said earlier, they're just not always at that table, like the funding table, the public policy table, the executive table. And I think in some ways that's on purpose, like that was built that way on purpose, Mm. because if they were able to make the transformative changes and shifts that they know are needed, if they had that power to really do that, I think many of those tables would cease to exist. Like they just wouldn't, they'd be, they wouldn't exist anymore. Um, Mm. And, you know, I could talk a lot about, um, I don't know if I want, I could talk a lot about more about that, but I think what I'll say is the nonprofit structure as it is now is a very top-down model. Like as a fundraiser, I would spend most of my time with those who are giving the biggest gifts. And like, of course, like that makes sense, right? That wasn't even, that's like an obvious thing. But as, but when that happens and when that happens at scale, because I know it's not just me, you know, all throughout the country, fundraising professionals are spending their time and giving, um, you know, letting those who are writing the biggest checks um, have a lot of sway, have a lot of uh, power. And as a result, those who are closest to the, those who are actually part of the community served don't always get that same say. Mm. Um, And that kind of reinforces inequity, which is really the thing that we were trying to solve in the first place. So it's very kind of like, I couldn't have really put this into words when I was actively working in the nonprofit field. And I I, maybe I'm still not really fully able to put into words, but I knew something felt off with the kind of nonprofit model as it was like something wasn't aligning. Um, And so I just realized that my highest and best kind of purpose was probably to leave the nonprofit field and try to do my part of the change from the outside, which is really this kind of thought leadership work and equipping these these female founders, these leaders in the social impact work and, you know, and board members, too, who are part of the community served, you know, people who have essentially people who have lived experience in the issue that they're trying to solve. Um, I feel like my work is really equipping them with the with what they need to to become that voice, to build that platform, to become that thought leader. Right. Well, I think that what I, and, and this may be, I'm just going to speak from personal experience and maybe it'll, it'll relate um, to the way that, that you kind of felt leaving the nonprofit space. But I, um, I, I've experienced a, a kind of a dissonance when I was leaving the military um, mm-hmm. and, and kind of, cause I had this opportunity for promotion. Um, I had a set of captain's bars on the table. I was a technical sergeant at the time. Um, and I kind of started to see this writing on the wall of, you know, our unit was going to be going through some changes. There were some things that I didn't necessarily um, agree with coming down the pipeline, but I also had this promotion and everybody at work loved working with me, you know? So I kind Mm -hmm. of had this like, well, I have this duty to the team, but I also feel like I'm being called to this higher purpose. And I remember sitting down with my Colonel and I'm literally like sobbing in his office. Right. Because I'm like, Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm at a loss. You know, I, my gut is telling me to go do something batshit crazy. And 
but my brain is like, you belong here. You've made a lot of impact here. You know, this is, this is your home. And he told me something. He was like, you know, he was like, you're going to be helping the same population. You're just going to be wearing a uniform of a different color. Mm, wow. and, and you'll be able to help exponentially more people than if you were just constrained to the position of, a, of being a flight nurse. Mm. Because you have the power to help people find those ahas. That's something that he knew me for was to send me into a unit that was having a little bit of confusion. There's miscommunications, whatever. I was like the guy that could get the burning train back onto the track somehow. And like, mm. you're mad at this person. You guys need to have a conversation that we facilitate. Let's talk this over. Let's talk this over. Let's get this stuff moving. And he was like, imagine you taking those talents to the rest of the world on your terms. And, and that was like a big kind of, that was an aha moment for me. It was like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, like inside of this position, I could impact everybody at this organization and everybody that interacts with this organization. But if I take one step backwards, I can do that for 50 organizations. Mm, gosh. And, and he really opened up my eyes to like, you can, like, it, it was not a calling of leaving something behind. It was a calling to doing something bigger. Gosh, and you know what? Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. That's that. That was it. That's all he told me. And then like all the crying stopped and I made a decision to get out of the military within like two or three months after that oh, conversation. Gosh, I love that story because you know what I think that story represents for me is like taking it back to a bigger vision. Hmm. And so I'm curious, are you familiar with this parable? It's called the three stonecutters parable. I am about to become. <laughs> yes, you are. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Okay. I love the story. And I say it often. Okay, so Jan and and friends who are listening. So imagine three stonecutters sitting in front of this huge block of granite. And each of them has a hammer and a chisel. And all three of them are working away at the stone in front of them. Hmm. And as you look at them, it appears that all three of them are actually doing the exact same thing, which is just cutting the slab, cutting the slab. But you go up to them and you ask the first stonecutter, hey, what are you doing? And they say, oh, I'm carving stone. Then you go to the second stone cutter and ask what they're doing. And they say, well, I'm carving stone so that I can build a wall. But then you ask the third one, hey, what are you doing? And they say, I'm carving stone that will build a cathedral where my community will gather for worship. And so you can see the activity is the same. And I think all of us as independent workers or like in your, in your story, like we're, we're doing similar things day to day, but... You know, and they're all things that are covered like in the indie curriculum, like figuring out how to productize and scale our services or figure out value-based pricing. Like there's so many things that all of us are doing. But I think the difference in the third stone cutters example is that they're consistently relating that day-to-day -day back to a bigger vision or a bigger North Star. And so they can see and embody and hold that larger narrative that actually like inspires and transforms everyone they come across. So it's like, it's making it bigger. I think a big piece of this work, whether it's thought leadership or just be growing as a leader is being able to see that bigger picture and zooming out, right? Which you were able to do. I love that. I can't believe I've never heard that before. That's really mm -hmm. cool. You said it's the three stone cutters. Mm -hmm. the it. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. I feel like, um, I feel like uh, that's, that is very akin to to the indie collective, you know, structure as far as, you know, when you first come into that cohort. Um, and I remember coming into my first cohort 
I kind of sat there and I was like, okay, I'm super out of place, right? That's how <laughs> I perceived it. I, that's how I felt kind of sitting there. Cause I was like, okay, I'm 25 years old. I just spent, you know, this investment on myself, um, which was like, I didn't have a whole lot of extra room in my bank account after that. It was just like, okay, this is like my, my bet on myself. Yeah. Um, and I remember sitting there and I was like looking over, I almost feel like I had syllabus shock, right? Like I'm looking mm. over all of the things that we're going to go over in the next 10 weeks. And I was like, I didn't go to school for business. I don't know what <laughs> any of this means. Um, it, like legit, like I, I went to nursing and psych, you know, I, I so I'm yeah. looking at all this stuff. I'm like, I've never seen any of these things before, but I remember kind of going through that and the, the first presentation with Dan mm. and, and the, and the entire presentation being focused on understanding the bigger vision, painting that for yourself, like focusing on the, you know, we talk about the three L's all the time in any collective cohort. Um, and, and that's what living, loving lifestyle. Yeah. And, and, and actually being aware that those are things that you can choose how to balance, you know, and, and going through this painting of that bigger picture after that first meeting, just spending an hour. And I think I spent an hour after that meeting kind of sitting down and they have, you know, the post curriculum work and everything. And I was sitting there and I was like, I'm so excited for the rest of this course. Mm. You know, for, the <laughs> yes. first, for the first time inside of my independent journey, which I had at that point been on for about two years mm. for the first time, I felt like I could clearly see where I wanted to go. And it wasn't prior to that initial session. It was very much like, I want to make X amount of dollars, or I want to be able to purchase X thing. And that's what I was using to motivate myself. But after that first session, it was like, no, I want to be this person <sighs> five to 10 years from now. Yes. And, and that gave me the motivation that I needed to, to your point earlier, change habits that were contradictory to who that person is you know, to, to actually have the courage to make changes or maybe tolerate a little bit more risk to pursue that bigger vision. But until that day that I actually had that bigger vision painted and I couldn't see it, it's like walking into a cave and there's no, even a faint light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. You know, you just walk in and it's complete darkness. But the moment that you paint that bigger vision, it's like somebody on the other side of the tunnel has a pickaxe and they poke a little hole. And now you can see that strain of light coming through. And the more effort you put into building that vision, the more effort that person with the pickaxe puts in to clearing out the other end of the tunnel. Yeah. And the more and more visible that other side becomes. Um, and so I think that that really is, is brought out inside of that story of the three stone cutters. It's, you know, you have one person that's like, I'm just cutting rock. Mm -hmm. But this person on the other side is like, no, I can see it. I can see the steeple. I can see people gathering. I can, I can picture what value this is going to bring to the world. And that's what I'm anchoring in. Oh, that's so good. It, 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 it's about imagination, right? I think imagination is one of the mm -hmm. greatest tools that we, uh, that we can hone you know, one of the greatest skills that we can hone as independent workers and just people navigating the world as change makers, like without imagination, nothing else can really come of it because the world that we've been given, like kind of earlier, we were talking about narrative therapy. It's like many of us were given a script and we're actors that are 
you know, work in the script. But when you have imagination, that's how you become the director, right? And maybe you need a little support, like with a narrative therapist or with somebody to help you find that vision, kind of like Indie Collective did for us. But yeah, it goes back to imagination, radical imagination, because in order to affect change, we have to be able to manifest a world that doesn't yet exist and then live as if we're already in that world, right? Because that's what I think of as like embodied visionary leadership. I think, you know, one of the things that I think people get wrong about thought leadership is the word thought. Like they focus too much on the word thought because I don't think it's actually about your thoughts. Like anybody could have some great thoughts and get up in, in like a great suit and get up and talk about it. But it's actually about lived leadership, right? It's like living the change we want to see. And I think that's why thought leadership gets a bad rap because we see people who are out there as, you know, positioning themselves as thought leaders, but something is off about it. You know, like, um, Hmm. There's a clash. They, they they come off as performative or posturing because they're not actually being about the work that they're speaking to, right? And I and I think, you know, that's it's why hard. I feel like a lot of people have trouble coming up with thought leadership content. That's like, yeah, um, the probably the number one obstacle that I encounter when I I do thought leadership work with people is is they like, well, how do I come up with consistent content? I'm like, you can come up with as much content as you want as long as it's lived experience. That's you right. Know, when you run into roadblocks coming up with content, you probably shouldn't be writing about it because you probably don't know nothing about it. Because <laughs> you're not living it. Because you're, you're not, not you're not it. in it. Yeah, that's right. Like, and 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 people, I don't care how good you are at copywriting. I don't care how well you can craft a script. People will be able to call your crap if yeah. if they're reading a post that does not sound or feel like you. That's right. You know, and right. and and that's what's so wild to me is like, hey, you know, you don't have to do anything other than think of what you've experienced identify the obstacles that you've overcome in your own life. And then I, how did you put it earlier? You said something earlier that I thought was really beautiful. It was, it was, um, um, that, that you're essentially, you're not writing to other experts. You're writing to a previous version of you. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Like so often we, our audience is the person that we once were. And That's so we have, yeah. yeah. And so we don't have to be this, like, you know, I think about it, you know, um, when I would, go and take uh, tours of colleges when I was trying to figure out where to go to school. And it's like, I would go and take a tour and it's not the Dean that comes and gives you the tour of the campus. It's a student who's maybe like one year older than you, who's just like one, you know, maybe even a few semesters ahead of you. They're not an expert on the college, but they are more relatable because they actually have just been through that experience themselves. And that's mm. what I think this works about. Like we don't have to be, sometimes it's actually, uh, it, it creates a wall or a barrier if we are too credentialed or too yeah. educated in something, right? Because it's about being real. It's about living, living it. Yeah, no, I agree wholeheartedly. I always, um, one of the one of the things that that really stands out to me, uh, or the way that I have phrased that to people in the past, is that you really only need to be one to two chapters ahead to add value. Yeah, that's right. You know, because I that was the biggest piece of my imposter syndrome when I first entered the independent space. Was like, I need to be an expert. I need to read all this stuff. I listened to hundreds of hours of podcasts. I was just like. Mm because I was like, a, I was a nurse coming into the business world. And so I was right. like, my imposter syndrome was massively high. And I was just like, I need to do this, do this, do this. And then I, I forget who it was. It might've actually been Sam for real. Um, sat me down and was like, dude, chill. <laughs> <laughs> you like, think of what you've done. And he was the first, one of the first people that pointed out, like you left a field nursing 
that is extremely difficult to get a degree in to mm. do you know to to tell stories about other people and build something of your own like that takes courage that takes authenticity that takes and then i started looking at myself like ah okay so sam yeah was like really one of the first people that encountered that for me and and kind of pulled that back and as the imposter syndrome kind of started to melt away i was like you know what it it was it was one of those moments where i'm like i belong here i'm excited to be here i'm mm. ready to start putting stuff forward it has almost been an hour can you believe that Wow. I can't believe that. I could talk to you forever. I mean, how amazing is it? How much of our experience is the same? That's what I was just thinking. Right? Yeah. Like throughout uh, yeah. just I, the storytelling, the, the, the being, the working in the addiction recovery space, you know, that, right. that kind of calling, I just feel like it is something that we're kindred spirits on. Um, mm. and so you went through all of this stuff, right? Like you were this executive, you worked your way up inside of this nonprofit um, from fundraising to executive director, started your own independent practice or really, you know, working with people, doing VIP days and creating amazing space for them to experience something super therapeutic, but also extremely valuable to their brand. If, if you had to think of yourself now, right, a couple of chapters ahead of the person that you once were. And you had to go back mm -hmm. to the person who is just starting their independent journey and give that person a couple of pieces of sage wisdom. No pressure. Mm. <laughs> 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 what, what would you tell them? Man, I love, I feel like everybody should be asking themselves this question who's listening because it's a good question. Um, you know what I would say, Jan, is when I started, right, as an independent uh, worker, I looked around to see what everyone else was doing. I popped onto Instagram and LinkedIn. I was like, what is everybody else doing? And it seemed like they're all doing group coaching programs. And they all had courses. And I was like, okay, I guess that's what I have to do. So I spent a bunch of time doing that and realized it didn't actually, those types of uh, offerings didn't really fit my personality or my strengths. And so that's where the VIP day came from. And so what I would say, what the advice I would give is like, don't worry about what other people are doing, right? Not just because of the comparison trap that I talked about earlier, but I think we have to go inward to find that real truth. Like, it's like, I think instead of going externally to see what everyone else is doing, I think we have to ask ourselves like, okay, what are we passionate about? What makes us credible? What unique lived experiences have we had? Um, and nobody else can tell us that we're the ones who have that, that's those answers. And I know how tempting it can be to like, just see what everyone else is doing, but they will no no one else can give you the answers that you're looking for. Um, you, you've got them, you've got them. And so it takes getting quiet and getting still and going inwards because I mean, the clues are all there. Like the breadcrumbs are all there. It's just putting it together, you know? I'm not even going to try to add anything to that y'all. I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm just going to leave that where it's at. So, um, if people want to, um, wow, that was cool. That was good. Um, mm. if, if, so if people want to find you, they want to engage with you, um, Instagram website, LinkedIn. Um, I know LinkedIn is a great place to, to find you. We can post that inside of the description. Um, but what, what are other ways that people can get a hold of you if they want to, uh, to work with you? Yeah. I mean, LinkedIn would probably be the best, best way. I'm on there all the time. I kind of consider it my playground. I do have an Instagram, but I mostly just post pictures of my dog, <laughs> which is actually great. Like, I think you should all follow me just to see pictures of Gary because he's the best. Um, but other than that, I have a website, which is lumosmarketing.co. 
And I would say, though, that's how to get a hold of me. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you for spending an hour with me today. I appreciate your time. Oh, it went by so fast. We need to do this again sometime. And also, if you have not yet subscribed to The Modern Independent, uh, go ahead and click that subscribe button, whether you are in the Spotify app, Apple Podcast, Overdrive, or all of the different places that the kids are listening to podcasts these days, um, because I'm watching and I pay attention to that. So <laughs> if you don't do that, I will know. Just kidding. I actually won't, but I will be sad if you don't subscribe. So until next time, this has been another episode of The Modern Independent, The Launchpad.